Come on, it's exciting to be up here. It's a bit daunting knowing that the great Terry Virgo was here last week, and now you have the great Andy Cooley, so here we are. <coughs> I've got to speak it over myself. <laughs> it's so good to be here. The bonfire night, if you, if, you, if you like bonfires and fireworks, the bonfire night is always good. Uh, there's a story that Zoe loves to tell about after one year, I think it's when we went to the um, nun's place. Don't tell the story. No, it's not that story. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the story of throwing fireworks on the fire. No, it's not that one. <laughs> it's a different one. But I was falling asleep afterwards. Uh, and in my, um, my half-awake, half-asleep state, I just said, oh, very big bonfire. Very good event. <laughs> and that's always been a kind of memorable thing for us that we've... Um, <laughs> held on to. <laughs> it's really special, isn't it, what God is doing in our, in our midst right now. Yeah. It feels like there's a real special, I don't know, presence and flow of the Spirit as we meet. I know that we are, um, on Friday mornings when we meet together to pray, we meet together every Friday, 6.30 a.m. You're really welcome to join us. Um, but there's obviously a cost in sleep. But each, we, we have four churches gathering in that place. In fact, do we have five now, Munich as well? And always, if you come into that room a little bit like, well, okay, what is God doing this week? You leave thinking, oh, actually, this person said this has happened this week. This person said this has happened this week. This person said this has happened. And, you, and it just, before you even pray, your soul is lifted and you think, what? God, you're doing something special in this place. Upper Room Academy on Saturday mornings when we just gather together and you feel the Holy Spirit flowing and blowing in a new way. You feel something of the freshness of the Spirit upon the people. You hear stories of people being healed. You see, hear stories of being, people being saved. In our midst, on this day, today, God's outstretched arm is at work. And what we're, what we're doing is we're Looking through Moses and the story of the Exodus, which is one of the biggest redemption stories of the Bible. One of the ones that keeps going back to and keeps getting referred to again and again throughout Scripture. Because it's an amazing story. And what we're looking into is actually we don't just want this to come and go. We want to grow something of what God is doing. We want to grow in the anointing, grow in the expectancy. We want to sustain it. I, I want to know that actually when I move on to a different church or to heaven, depending which comes first. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> then you, I want to know that actually there's a sustained move and presence of the Lord in this place. I, I want to know that we're sustaining what we're doing. And, and that is part of what I'm going to be speaking about today. Uh, I get the lovely topic. Terry landed me in a little bit because the preaching plan, he was meant to do the plagues in the Passover, and he kind of left that to me. So thanks, Terry, for that. But I've really enjoyed actually digging into what it teaches. And so I hope that I'm going to bring something fresh from the Word of God to you today as well to help us sustain what God is doing. I'm going to start by reading Exodus 5. It's quite hard in this light to read. Um, 
So what we have, we have had uh, the Egyptians have put um, fair, uh, the Israelites into slavery. They, they've captured, they, they, the Israelites moved there with Joseph happily, willingly. They saw the move and the provision of God. But then that Pharaoh died, and it says at the beginning of Exodus, um, the new Pharaoh remembered nothing of Joseph. And so actually now they start feeling threatened, and they start feeling like, oh, they're a growing population, uh, and we're starting to get worried that actually they will take over because they're so expansive. And then the, um, Duncan spoke about this. He spoke about how the um, midwives were told to kill the firstborn. Or the, the boys, uh, not the firstborn, the boys that were being born to the Israelites in order to control the population. The Egyptians were enslaving and oppressing God's people. And then um, Moses comes along and he thinks and he sees it. He, he's, been, he's been spared by God. He's been kept in a Moses basket. <laughs> I wonder if they had the name. No, let's not go there. That's why they named him Moses, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and God ordained it that the princess of Egypt would pick him up and take him as her own and grow him and he became uh, almost a prince in the house of Egypt so he had all the riches and power of Egypt but the Bible says that he wasn't satisfied with that because he wanted to look after his people and so he tried he was angry one day and he saw a slave driver just killing one of the Egypt uh, one of the Israelite slaves uh, oh no, whipping him really hard and hurting him and he got really angry and he was like, no, I'm going to protect him. And he actually killed that Egyptian thinking he'd done a great thing. And then the next day he came out and there were two Israelites fighting each other and Moses kind of stepped in to try and stop them from fighting each other and they turned around and instead of saying, oh, thank you for killing that Egyptian, we know you're on our side, they actually said, who are you? Like, who are you to stop us fighting? Like, who are you? And what, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses got scared because the news was out there that he'd killed this Egyptian. And so he fled. He tried to do it in his own strength, and he fled away. And he spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then we hear him walking the sheep around. And I, I always wonder, and there might be a really practical reason for it, I'm sure someone would tell me, but he was, he'd taken his flock near the Mount Sinai where God would meet people. And I always wonder, like, was he kind of there purposefully kind of pondering on, okay, God, I've been in the wilderness for 40 years. I thought you'd called me to something. What, what are you calling me to? And I wonder if he had taken his flock in a purposeful direction, thinking, oh, God, what are you doing? Will you meet with me? Will you do something? It doesn't say that in the Bible, so it's complete conjecture, so um, don't quote it. But, but then the God of Israel turns up in a burning bush. And this is one of the most famous bits where the God of Israel calls Moses and says, go to Pharaoh and declare to him that he should set my people free. And Moses for a while goes, no, not me. I'm too weak. I'm too lame. But in the end, he's convinced by God and he goes off to, to, uh, to talk to Pharaoh in order to bring God's plan of salvation for God's people. And then Terry spoke last week of the, a bit of the journey. And here at this point, we have, uh, just before chapter 5, we have Moses uh, meeting with the people and showing them some of the signs. And it says this, the people of Israel believed when they saw the signs and they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel. 
and had seen their afflictions. They bowed their heads and they worshipped. So Moses went to the Israelites and he told them, We're gonna, I'm gonna, God is going to set you free. He's called me. He's shown me. He's given you these signs. And I am going to set the people free. And the people of Israel were in awe that God had seen them and heard them in their oppressed place. And they were like, yes, come on. God is going to set us free. Let's, let's do this. And then chapter 5 is where we begin. So afterward, Moses, so after Moses had convinced the Israelites that God was going to come, he then goes into Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, yeah, of course, off you go. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I'm not going to let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmaster of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make the bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather their own straw, but don't reduce the number of bricks that they have to make. For they are lazy and idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to this God. Let heavier work be laid upon them. That is not what I saw coming. (laughs) That is not what the Israelites saw coming. And you hear here the Israelites getting really angry and be like, I thought you said God was going to set us free. You've made our lives worse. You've made our lives difficult. What are you playing at? What are you doing? But it's a funny picture, isn't it? So Pharaoh is the king of this amazing country. And it's like top of the range in all ways. It's powerful. It's mighty. Pharaoh is worshipped by the people. He's almost a god to them. And yet they also have all these other gods. And all these other gods are are worshipped as well. Gods that will provide food for them. Gods that provide water for them. God that provides their, all all that they need. God that will protect them and their livestock. And actually, they're doing pretty well. The Egyptians are a pretty good kind of example of, actually, we're doing quite well. And then what happens is this like uh, raggedy shepherd man walks into the, the presence of this amazing pharaoh. And he says, Our God is telling you that you need to let his people go. Now, that's quite funny, isn't it? Not only does Moses look like a shepherd, not only does he look like that, but also the people that serve this God, this powerful God, they're in slavery. They're oppressed. They have no freedom. They have no choice. They have no ability to make decisions. And so it's obvious that Pharaoh would say, 
well, my God's doing us quite well. What, what, what's your God doing for you that you should think I should obey him? And it's a, an amazing picture here. Actually, sometimes God doesn't always, it doesn't always look like we're like a mighty army. It doesn't always look like we're like, uh, serving the mightiest of mighty gods. And sometimes it feels like you step out and you try and move in the supernatural or you try and move in bringing the kingdom and you run full pelt into a wall, <laughs> an immovable object, and that hurts quite a lot. And it feels like, okay, God, what? <laughs> and that's what we have here with Moses. God, what? <laughs> what on earth are you doing? <laughs> you've sent me here. I believe you've told me this. What on earth are you doing? And you have this at the end of chapter 5. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. What has, God, what has Moses done right in this situation? If we're going to learn from this, what has Moses done right in this situation? He's gone back to God. He's not run away from God. He's run straight back to God. And you see this again and again through the Exodus. The people grumble, the people complain, the people moan, the people... What does Moses do? Get straight back into God's presence. He doesn't run away from God when times are difficult. He doesn't run away from God when he doesn't quite understand. In fact, he runs to God. He understands that he is in fellowship with the living God. He is in this living fellowship. He's called into this relationship with God. He's in a living relationship with the living God who's here. And so he goes back to him. While I was preparing this, I got a text through. My phone was on my desk. And I got a text through it, and the name on top of the, the text was someone that I had prayed for, a non-Christian that I'd prayed for for healing um, about a year ago. And I prayed for him, and nothing happened. <laughs> no healing, no nothing. Non-Christian guy that I thought, okay, God, you can use this situation for your glory and your good. And it felt like I ran into a brick wall with that guy. And so actually it was really helpful when I got a text through because I was like, oh God, maybe that's a nudge from you as I prepare this, that you're doing something in that life, that you're doing something there. You go back to God and you, you process it through with God and you, 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 get, you even get angry with God, but you get back in God's presence. And this, this is the passage that I've been kind of lost on all week. Because then God speaks to Moses. And this is an incredible passage. So chapter 6, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. By my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them previously. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I 
have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to, my, to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give you for a possession. Uh, I will give to you. Uh, I will give you the land for a possession. I am the Lord God. When I've been reading this in the week, I've just been lost in worship. Because I am in awe of how many times God says I in this chapter. He doesn't say you. He doesn't say you. He doesn't say you. He says I. I will set you free. I, God, have heard the burdens. I have heard their cries. I have heard their oppression. I will outstretch my arm. I am the Lord Almighty. I am Yahweh. I am the one who everything exists because of. I am I am doing this. This is my plan, not your plan. I am working in this place. I, 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 I. God is saying, I am at work. I am at work in this place. I have a plan of salvation. I am outworking something majestic. I, the Lord, God Almighty. I, the one who created all things. I, the Lord, the Lord will do it. The Lord is here. His arm is outstretched. I, the Lord, am present. Sometimes when people tell me stories of, oh, I stepped out, but sometimes I want to comfort them. That's not what God does. God makes a declaration. I am at work in this place. I am doing something special. I am outworking my plans. I, the sovereignty of God, is at work in this place. One of the biggest revelations I had over the last few years is that I am not calling God into my situation. I am not calling him into my plans. I am not trying to get God to kind of partner with me so that I can take him. I am caught up in the living God's plan of salvation for this world. I am caught up in his sovereign plan of action. I am caught up in him, his action, his sovereignty. He is outworking something. So even if I don't understand what is going on in situation, it doesn't mean he's not working. It means I am caught up in his plan. He has a plan. This, this, I got this in Revelation, but uh, in the book of Revelation, when we studied that, not just in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, God has an outworking plan which he's unrolling throughout the whole of history, which he's capturing us up in. His people, my people, we are God's people on the earth today. My people. We are caught up in his plans. And actually, we, we need to be lost in worship at who God is. No matter what our situation says, no matter what we think, we need to be lost in this is who God is. God, we love you. And it was wonderful this morning, just being lost in Jesus. Your name is sweet. Your name is honey on my lips. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, you're glorious. Just getting lost in that place of worship as God speaks himself over us. But within God's sovereign plan, there is no room for passivity. 
You see, the, the problem with sovereignty and the problem with if you start trying to step out and don't see God moving is that you can start leaning too much on sovereignty. And you can stop going back to God and saying, actually, no, God, you're, you are healer, you are restorer, you are redeemer, you are this. You know, you, you can stop leaning in to that call of God upon your life to bring his kingdom on this earth. Whereas it should have that absolute opposite effect because God is powerful and mighty. And as you get caught up in his sovereign plans, he calls you and he speaks to you and he says, do this and do that and do this and do that. And you will see the power of God working through you in your midst. Often, when you look at the, the plagues and the Passover, the, the big conversation in theological circles is, well, does, does Pharaoh actually have any agency? Does he have any ability to make choice? Does he have an ability to, to make any decisions? Or is he just caught up in God's sovereign outworking? And I, I would say it's the same here for Moses, actually. Does Moses have any agency? Does Moses, and it's the same thing whether you're a believer or a non-believer, do you have agency as man? Do you have the ability to say no and to say yes? And I think this story, the way that God speaks to Moses next, he directs him, but Moses has choice. He, he has a decision to make. Do I obey what God is saying or do I not? There is a decision here that Moses has to make where he says, you know, do I choose to keep following God's plan or do I choose to just walk away from it? Now, and I, I think it's the same with Pharaoh when we, we get to it in a minute. Just when God speaks to him, it says that he had an, God, God sent Moses to say, let my people go or this will happen. And it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God gave him a choice and an option. God gave him decisions to make. Now, I know that I cannot describe perfectly how the sovereignty of God and the agency of man go together. But I know the longer that I have been a Christian, the more that I know that God doesn't just tell me what to do and doesn't just decide what I need to do. He gives me choices and options to partner with him to see his kingdom come. And I think we need to have both of these things together. You know, God is outworking something majestic and he calls me into partnering with him on that plan. Now, one of the interesting things is that actually this kind of upsetness from Moses needn't have happened at all if he'd just listened to God a bit clearer. Because in Genesis 3, Moses, uh, God says to Moses, you know, I will have to compel the Pharaoh with a mighty hand. I will have to stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders. I will have to do that to let you, the Israelites go free. He won't just let you go away freely. But I think in the grace of God, he uses this to grow Moses' confidence. And he, he, he teaches him again. And in this, this, the next verses along in chapter 6, he actually recommissions him and says it again. Now you will have to see the outstretched arm of God against, against Egypt. Now you will see God's power at work. But this kind of listening to God is so important. Learning how to hear the whispers of God. Learning how to hear the voice of God directing us and guiding us. And acknowledging that, you know, we might not always hear completely clearly and plainly. 
that actually obedience to what we do here is the important thing. Do you know, it's often when we say people are trying to um, step out in, in signs and wonders and things, and, and often we say we celebrate the success. Uh, no, we don't. We say the opposite. We celebrate the obedience, not the success. And I think in this passage, this is where it's most clearly kind of, we celebrate Moses because he was obedient to God. We celebrate him because he was obedient to God. And I think that is the direction that we all need to celebrate. So what happens next? God tells Moses to go back into Pharaoh's presence. And he does. And in fact, Pharaoh goes, uh, Moses goes ten more times into Pharaoh's presence. And he talks about, and he, he offers uh, these kind of, he says, no, not offers, he says that these plagues are going to come. So there's ten plagues. A plague of blood, so the river Nile turns into blood. I'm going to have to read them. A plague of frogs, so frogs cover the whole land. Plague of gnats, a plague of flies. I can hear whispers as if people are telling each other. A plague of boils, a plague of hail, a plague of locusts, a plague of darkness, a plague of, uh, and then the final plague, the plague uh, where the firstborn son dies. And each time Pharaoh goes in and says, this is what God is saying. You have a choice to let my people go or not listen. What are the three big things, and most of this is from Phil Moore's book, actually, the three big things that are displayed in the plagues about God? That God is, the first thing is that God is all-powerful. He is El Shaddai, he is almighty. You see, Pharaoh was someone, as I said before, who was worshipped as God. And it would have had a crown on, and it would have had a cobra uh, on the crown. The first warning sign given to Moses was to chuck his staff on the floor and it would turn into a snake. And then the magicians of Egypt were able to do the same thing, but not quite as well because Moses' snake went and he ate all the other snakes of the magicians. This was a kind of a, a fire from God across the bowels. He missed on purpose, but he was saying, my gods, my, my God, El Shaddai, is bigger, better, stronger than your God. Here's a warning for you. No, none of your gods are going to be able to survive this. And each plague represents different gods that Pharaoh and Egyptians would have worshipped and would have bowed down to and would have said, they're powerful, they're protecting us, they're guarding us. And these plagues just display God's power and judgment over other gods and over nations. You see, the, the final plague, in fact, the, let's just go back to the third plague. The third plague was the one where the magicians couldn't copy what, uh, what Moses did. And they went into Pharaoh and they said, listen, Pharaoh, be careful because this is the finger of God at work. I think, Sandy, before when we were, you talked about the finger of God working in this place. You mentioned it before, and I just thought, the finger of God is at work. God's arm is outstretched. 
And right from the third plague, the magicians, the ones that were the, the powerful people within Egypt, were telling Pharaoh, you need to be careful here. <laughs> God is at work in this place and he's going he's gonna to destroy Egypt if you do not let these people go. So the all-powerful hand of God. The other two things displayed kind of go together. Because it's the grace of God and the patience of God. Now, you might not necessarily think, oh, how do I see them in the plagues? I just want to read an excerpt from Phil Moore's excellent book on the subject. The God who raised up Pharaoh was more gracious than any of the Egyptians dared imagine. The Egyptians lived in mortal fear of their idols and their religion was an anxious attempt to keep each of the gods in in their pantheon happy. They felt like human pawns in their gods' power games. So they wouldn't have been offended to read ten times in the chapters that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What would surprise them, though, was that the God also granted Pharaoh freedom to decide to harden his own heart towards him. He gave Pharaoh a genuine opportunity to obey, but then confirmed his stubborn choice and handed him over to the path of destruction. Our secular mindset may object that God has no right to intervene at all, but in their proper context, these chapters speak of grace and mercy unknown to any of the gods of Egypt. God is all-powerful, but he is gracious at the same time. He desires, it says in James, he desires mercy over judgment. And these plagues went on and on and on. And it, it wouldn't have been one after the other day after day. It would, it, they, I think I read something that said that it was at least a six-month period. And there was moments where the Pharaoh could have decided, actually, no, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to change. I'm going to let the people go out of slavery. But he hardened himself constantly. But God constantly came back and gave grace and gave opportunity, 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 opportunity. In his patience, he even gave warnings to Pharaoh. Sometimes he gave him as long as a week to repent and avert the disaster before it came. When God came to the river Nile, to to the blood, he spared the underground water table so the Egyptians could dig and get water and not die of thirst. When he sent a plague of hail, he told them the exact time it would come so that the flocks and the herds and anyone in the fields could not die by being destroyed. He destroyed the plague of locusts by drowning them in the Red Sea as a prophecy of what would happen to Pharaoh's army if he mistook the grace for weakness. And he used the plague of darkness to force the Egyptians to spend three days reflecting at home before the tenth and deadliest plague struck. God is a God of all power, but he is also a God of grace and patience who will come back to you again and again and give you the opportunity to repent, opportunity to change, opportunity to be different. It's an amazing thing. And sometimes I think we can create God in our own image. And I think that's one of the warnings here. We can want God to be tame. We can want him to not be all-powerful. We can kind of make him in our image so that he's not kind of uh, judging sin, that he's not the judge, that he's not here. 
to judge sin, that he's not hard, that he doesn't hate sin, uh, and we can live in that place where we kind of accept our own failures or the failures of those around us. But we can also be ungraceful towards ourselves and towards other people as well and not allow God to be both together. And we need to know that God is all-powerful and almighty and can transform and he hates sin and he judges. But also that he's patient and kind and graceful towards us and constantly gives us opportunity to repent and be forgiven. That is the God that we serve and he's different to any other God. Different to any other God. I'm just going to land on the, the Passover. Because the Passover, thankfully, Manuela spoke about uh, fantastically well. So if you weren't at the weekend away, you can go back and listen to Manuela's talk on the Passover. But the Passover is the perfect picture of the gospel. The Israelites were told that the firstborn of every household would die. The Egyptians were told the same. But the Israelites were given this plan. Kill a lamb, a perfect unblemished lamb, take its blood and put its blood on the doorpost. It has died in your place. It has died in your place. Put the blood and the angel of death will pass over your house and you will not die because the blood of the lamb is covering you. And that is the gospel. That's the gospel right there in, in its wholeness. The blood of Jesus, the Lamb, the eternal Lamb of God, has taken on the sins of the world. And as long as the blood of Jesus is painted over your heart and mind and life, you are spared that death and destruction. As long as the blood of Jesus is painted over you, you are forgiven by the grace-filled God of all of your sins. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because his blood speaks a better word over your life. And I'm just interested by the Passover because there's nothing in the Passover chapters which say that the e Egyptians, if they were told about this lamb and how to get out of it, couldn't take a lamb themselves, slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts as well. And at the end of the chapter, it says that actually the, there is a mixed multitude that travel out of Egypt together. And I wonder, was there some Egyptians that listened in, that thought, God Almighty is at work in this place. God Almighty is here. I need to side with the Israelites and be in that plan instead of what Pharaoh and the Egyptians are doing in this place. And I think that's a word for us. Whoever you are, whatever your background, wherever you're from, whatever your history, the blood of Jesus is offered for you. The blood of Jesus, as he died on that cross, was for all of us. Anyone who believes is no longer under any condemnation for their past. From any nation, even if your nation is like a, a Muslim nation and I grew up in Islam, so I'm a, I'm a Muslim. Or even if it's a Hindu and I, I grew up in Hindu, so I, I must be a Hindu. No, the blood of Jesus has paid the price for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can have eternity because of what Christ has done for you. The gospel says 
The blood of Jesus covers. The blood of Jesus changes you. The blood of Jesus sets you free. And we just say, Jesus, I know you're in this place. I know that you're working. Jesus, I pray now. I want to pray for each of us, Lord Jesus, as we say, you are the sovereign God. You are the God who has caught us up in your plan of salvation for this earth, Lord Jesus. You are the God who has an outstretched arm, Lord Jesus, which means you're working in this place, Lord God. You are the God that hears our cries, Lord Jesus, and listens and responds. You are the God that gives us choice and opportunity to choose you, King Jesus. To choose the plans that you have for us, Lord. And I just want to pray now, Lord Jesus, for an an upswelling, Lord Jesus, within our hearts and souls, Lord Jesus. An upswelling of your mighty grace and power, Lord Jesus. Lord, I, I want to say we, I want to lead you actually people in a moment of repentance. Where we have not taken our sins seriously enough. And Lord Jesus, we just say we, we are sorry, Lord Jesus. Where we have chosen our own way instead of going your way. Where we have been unfaithful instead of faithful, Lord Jesus. Lord God, we repent of it, Lord. Lord God, we turn away from sin. Lord Jesus, you are the almighty God, Lord. You are at work, Lord Jesus. And we just, we turn away from sin, Lord. And Jesus, I just want to thank you that you are faithful to forgive us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your blood on that cross, Lord Jesus. And I pray for your transforming power now in each person, Lord God. Anyone who's captured captured by sin in this place, Lord Jesus. Anyone who's held captive by any addiction, Lord Jesus, or anything, Lord God, that is keeping them chained or shackled, Lord Jesus. And we just speak, Lord Jesus, your mighty blood over them, Lord God. Lord Jesus, we pray for freedom, Lord God. We pray for changed mindsets, Lord God. We pray for healing power, Lord Jesus. Jesus, we say that we love you. You are the El Shaddai, you are Yahweh, you are King above kings, you are Lord above lords. We worship you and we acknowledge that you are almighty and all-powerful in our lives, Lord. We acknowledge you, Lord Jesus, and we say you are almighty in this nation, Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we just pray now for your power to come in this nation, Lord Jesus. Lord God, we long for more people to come to know the blood of the Lamb. For more people to respond to your gospel, Lord Jesus. For more people to hear, Lord Jesus, of your goodness and your power. Lord God, your grace offered to them, Lord Jesus. And we just say, come, Lord Jesus, in this nation. Turn this nation back to you, King Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come.